Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. This episode is titled um, Inshore Fishing for Southern Flounder. We're going to be talking to Captain Luke Donay of Spot On Charters. We're going to be talking about tactics and live bait and gear. We're going to finish with a few key tips not to forget when you head out flounder fishing. And uh, so we've got a lot to talk about from one of our favorite guests and one of his favorite topics. My name is Gary Hurley of Fisherman's Post. Fisherman's Post has been serving the saltwater fishing community of North Carolina since 2003. We've been bringing you fishing reports, fishing information, fishing tournaments, fishing schools, and now in our latest and greatest effort, the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. And it is in this series that we reach out to our captain and guide friends from up and down the North Carolina coast and ask them to share with us their knowledge, their insights on how to catch more fish more often. But the uh, true goal isn't just catching more fish more often, but getting you and your family and the friends and friends out on the water, spending more time together more often. And I'm joined in this endeavor, this podcast today, episode today, with by Billy Thorpe of Thorpe Creative. Billy, I've seemed to be struggling a little bit, man. Please come in and add some professionalism to this podcast. Hey, you're doing good, man. You're doing good. No worries. No worries at all. We're here to have a good time. We got got our our buddy Luke Donay on the line to talk about flounder, which he, in my opinion, uh, as far as anyone I've seen and fished with, just really crushes them, man, consistently. You know, I think a lot of guys know how to flounder fish and do it well, but this guy consistently crushes the flounder game, and so... Definitely in our neck of the woods, famous, I would say. I would use the word famous flounder fisherman in this area for sure. So I'm Man, excited to learn even more. Of all the guys you fish with, you mean out of all three guys all you fish with, he's like them. the best flounder fisherman. That is heavy, <laughs> heavy endorsement. All three times I've Man. been saltwater fishing. Yeah. I, you know, whatever. Whatever. You're right. Okay. <laughs> whatever. He, he's great. You guys will see. Trust me. You'll see by the end of this episode. You'll see how good he talks about sick God. Anyway, let's talk about something different. Let's <laughs> like talk about sponsors. Our sponsors. Our sponsors are questioning right now. They're like, do we want to continue with this? these people? They're crazy. But anyway, let's get it right into it. We got Marine Warehouse Center uh, is just a phenomenal sponsor. We really appreciate these guys been supporting us since the beginning. I got a quick video from those guys, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Robbie with Marine Warehouse Center in Wilmington and Charleston. We are headquarters for Pair Custom Boats. These center consoles are handmade in Washington, North Carolina, and are custom designed for fishing and family fun on the water. Right now, we have several models in stock, and deal times on the custom orders are around five months. These boats are custom built to fit your needs, from the seating, the tops, the leaning posts, and the live wells. You design the entire layout of your boat. Come by and see for yourself why they're one of the fastest growing boat builders in the country. Boom, right there Boom. we go, man. Looking good, sounding good, that music on the end, still driving to it. And, you know, it's t- it, it is always time to reach out to them and start a relationship if you haven't, man. If your boat sails are anywhere in your future, you want to start that conversation sooner as opposed to later. And boat sales could be, you know, buying mm-hmm. or selling, man. Marine Warehouse Center is there for you, man. We love those guys. And we, and we have people listening and watching from all over the world, and they ship all over the world, too. So be sure to, if you see something you like, or if you got questions or whatever, they can get it to you. So no problem at all. And before we get to 
if Terrell sent us a joke this week. I'm not really sure. But before we get to that segment, Gary, I do want to shout out our other sponsor of this episode, uh, which they have been a great sponsor, is R.A. Hitch, Raleigh Apex Hitch. They get Hitch's trailers, bike racks, and so much more. Anything for the, the waterman, the outdoorsman, the outdoors woman, and water woman, I guess I could say. I don't know a better way to say whatever. You're the English guy. I'll let you. Back to you, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Well, I do have a joke. I mean, I don't know if I would say Terrell sent it over. I mean, he calls oh, me up okay. and, you know, usually dinner hour or morning coffee, whatever it is. And I'm always like, all right, Terrell, you know, I told you you could leave a voicemail. You don't have to tell me personally. He's like, no, man, I want to tell you personally because this one's really good. And I'm like, you know, as opposed to. And Billy, I've been telling you, like, I think he's running out of jokes. I, I believe... I believe we're getting it to the end. Oh, all right. Well, you tell me if this this joke seems like he's got plenty in his back pocket. And this is it. This is it right here. This will be the deciding factor. This is Terrell's joke again. This is not Gary's joke. What do you get when you cross a jacket with an octopus? A coat of arms. See what I mean? Where's my... Where's my... I tell you, well, I wish people wouldn't go to Marine Warehouse Center and buy a boat. I wish they would go there and give Terrell some good, some good jokes. Maybe that's what this pitch that, should be. That's it. Would you please go to Marine Warehouse Center and tell Terrell yeah. your best fish or boat joke? Yep, go, please. Yeah, go do that please. right now. And after you get back, if that experience isn't going well for you, Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Fisherman's Post and buy Gary and I a cup of coffee. For everyone who says, I don't see you drinking coffee because we don't have any. We all ran out, and this is a really good coffee. And Gary drinks the not really good coffee. I won't bash any of those brands, but uh, actually, when you buy Gary a coffee, you're really buying him like two coffees (laughs) because his coffee's so cheap. (laughs) Correct. Three. Maybe even three. Three coffees. Oh, man. Anyway, so, yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, and, and really, you know, go on buymeacoffee.com and uh, and submit something for us as well. Like if you have a topic or you know of a fishing guest that focuses on the, the coast of North Carolina, feel free to make a suggestion. We're always open. So appreciate yeah, it. We do. We want your suggestions. We want your feedback. We also, Billy, want a fish photo. And I got one for you, Gary. How about that? We got River Sykes from Leland with a pair of flounder caught using finger mullet and bucktails with gulp shrimp while fishing the Southport area. And that guy might give Luke Dernay a run for his money when it comes to putting big flounder in the boat. Right? (laughs) That that kid is off to a good start. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Luke is also holding up two fish in the cover art on our YouTube channel here. So I think he got the fish from that kid. He said, hey, kid, can I hold this fish? (laughs) I got a podcast. You want to make five bucks? (laughs) You want to make five bucks? (laughs) You want a cup of coffee? Yeah. (laughs) Boy. Oh, man. All right, Billy. Luke Donay is going to throw down a lot of flounder knowledge. And at the end of my conversation with him, I'm coming back to you for Billy's best takeaway. And I'm going to be ready, Gary. I believe you, actually. I believe you will be ready for Billy's best takeaway. But at this time, please, Billy, welcome to the screen our special guest tonight, Captain Luke Donay, spot on charters. Welcome to the show, Luke. How you doing? Hey, guys. How are you? Man, we are doing good. It's always a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure talking to you about flounder fishing. Today, inshore fishing for southern flounder. 
but you've been on this podcast before. You know the deal. The tradition is two questions before we get to the main event. Are you ready for your two questions, Luke? Yes, hit me. I should say, why should we listen to what you have to say about a flounder? But since we've been down this road, I would say, why should we still listen to what you have to say about a flounder? Well, um, honestly, I'm still catching them, so that helps. Um, honestly, it's, you know, I got into this business um, not to catch a, the full wide range spectrum of fish that's out there, which is, which is great of what we have here. But I got into this business to catch southern flounder. Um, I love fishing for flounder. It's what I, what I do best. Um, and, uh, and like I said, we're still catching some really nice fish out there. Thank goodness. Um, you know, I think with a couple of these things and rules and regs that have come down, agree with them, disagree with them. Um, I think it's, uh, it's starting to help, uh, that I hope, uh, we're, we're catching more and more and bigger and bigger fish, especially this year. So hopefully, uh, things I have to say today will uh, help you guys as soon as the season opens up. Fair enough, man. I like that. I like that answer. We will move on. Question number two, as is tradition, is a non-fishing related question, a non-fishing related question. In my attempt to be clever, I looked at your name, Donay, with that silent T and the spelling D-O-N-A-T looks a lot like donut. Mm -hmm. So I have a donut question for you, Luke Donay. Are you ready? I am. How much did the largest donut ever ever made weigh? Any idea how much the largest donut ever made? What did it weigh? I'm going to take a guess at 150 pounds. Um, how close to 1.7 tons is that? Whoa. Um, that's that's way off. That's what the person <laughs> gained after he ate it. <laughs> One point. If Google is right, 1.7 oh tons. My gosh. The that's a, that's a big uh, that's a big donut and uh going back to what my name means in french the, is what i've looked up it means do not do not eat that donut do not so. eat that do not eat that donut <laughs> do not start but let's talk flounder let's get away from donuts and donay how about it man let's talk flounder fishing man people love to listen to what you have to say so start us off cool guys um well, once again, my name is Luke Donay. I'm with Spot on Charters. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk to you today about catching inshore southern flounder. Um, you know, it's uh, once again, it's it's one of those things that's coming up here. We uh, we for um, going in on the uh, the well, kind of the third year, but really full on the second year of having a flounder season. Um, this, uh, hopefully these, uh, tips and tricks will really help you guys put them on, uh, not only, uh, not only more flounder, but, uh, but bigger flounder as well. Um, the, uh, and really what I like to, for you guys to take out of the seminar, um, really is, is not only how to, um, get those bigger and better flounder, but also how to do it more, uh, successfully as well as more efficiently and more, um, to, to enable conservation in the mix um, using different types of rigs and using different types of gear that will help you allow to maybe, you know, let those bigger flounder go and uh, continue and help to have continue to uh, have um, uh, a better conservation easement on uh, on these on this species of fish. So, yeah, that's uh, hopefully we can make that happen today. I'm in. Um, I love I am like you, man, flounder fishing at heart. And I know from doing our schools that many people are interested in flounder, even with the short season, interested in it. So where are we going to start, man? Where you want to? I man, think in my notes we yeah, talked. Talk, you tell me. 
Yeah, so let's talk about the actual flounder itself. Um, okay. A lot of people don't realize that uh, here in North Carolina, we have all three species of flounder. Um, a lot of people think that all flounder are one species. Actually, we have three. Um, we have southern, summer, and southern um, and Gulf. Um, a simple way to tell all, all three of them apart. Uh, southern have uh, really no spots. Uh, Gulf have three spots, and summer have five spots. And I know you look at flounder and you say, "Well, they all have spots." Well, really, flounder kind of a chameleon of sorts. They, you know, they can. Uh, uh, change their colors and blotches on their back um, to fit whatever habitat they would encompass at that any given point. You know, if they're on sand, they're going to be kind of that tan light color. If they're on some muddy bottom, they're going to be dark with some maybe some lighter little splotches mixed in. But there are certain spots on the back of flounder that uh, that do not change. And on the summer and the Gulf flounder, those there's three and five spots do not change. So when you're catching fish and you're wondering which one you have, you can tell it that way, but honestly, southern flounder stay inside until it's time to breed, in which they can go upwards of 70 miles offshore to breed, but then they come right back inside. So if you're getting a, uh, a flounder back in the marshes, you're getting it in the river, you're getting it in the uh, the back creeks and waterways, it's going to be a southern flounder 99% of the time. Um, the uh, the inlets and the um, uh, uh, the uh, ocean side is definitely going to carry your summer and uh, Gulf flounder. Um, they're uh, tentatively going to be a little bit thinner. Um, when you bring them up, a lot of times they look huge. They've got bigger uh, side fins and they've got bigger uh, um, uh, links a lot of the times. But then when you put up the thickness against a, uh, a summer and a Gulf flounder against a southern, there's no contest, man. A southern flounder is just fat. They're just fat fish. Um, but uh, but going but today we're gonna we're gonna talk about the southern flounder. Um, that's what a lot of people are gonna be targeting, especially when it comes down to um, the uh, the time when it's uh, you know when we start our season here in August sixteenth. Um, it's uh, it's gonna be a crazy day off to the races. If anything is like last year, um, it was it was crazy day one of flounder season. Um, so uh, definitely be careful out there on the first day of flounder season if you happen to go out on that Monday, which I believe it is. Um, but going into the southern flounder, let's go ahead and talk about habitat. You know, once again, southern flounder, they, uh, they're going to be in your inland waterways, back marshes, creeks, going to be way up in the river. They're going to be, um, you know, in those uh, real muddy type uh, areas that are, you know, that tentatively will um, definitely, like a lot of times where you're catching your, your drum and your speckled trout as well. Um, you know, they uh, flounder themselves in, in their mannerisms are, are a pretty interesting breed. They, um, you know, they need a little bit of current. Um, you know, they uh, flounder themselves. They don't move around. So, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, they've got to be faced in some sort, uh, in a semblance of current um, to let, allow oxygen to go over their gills. You know, they're going to need, they're going to need some type of water movement, not only for that, but you know, you want water movement to be moving bait. That's going to be moving toward them. Uh, the flounder is an ambush predator. Uh, it's not going to sit there and chase, especially the Southern flounder. It's not going to chase a bait for any long length of distance. Think of it almost like a rattlesnake. I mean, it's going to, it's going to strike within a body length or two of, uh, of where it's at and then go right back down and stay where it's at. Um, so the, you know, the flounder itself is, you know, it's to, to, to try to figure out why a flounder is what it is and how it, how it feeds is really going to kind of help you determine where you're going to fish and the type of water you're going to fish. So yeah, we, we'd stop, you know, we'll, we'll start right there if, if, uh, if that sounds good.
Yeah, man, this is all sounding good, man. I like the introduction. I I like the three species, and I like you know zeroing in on the habitat of the southern flounder. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm like all the viewers, listeners, man. I'm following everything and ready for what's next. Cool. Yeah, just don't let me ramble on because I can just talk flounder all day long. All of a sudden, we're going to be uh, drinking cocktails and and talking about catching flounder in all sorts of different areas. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, no, you know, you know, trying to figure out once again, you know why the flounder does what it does, especially the Southern flounder. You know, it's interesting if you go offshore and you start catching those, those uh, summer flounder and those Gulf flounder, you'll realize that they're a lot more aggressive. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll chase a bait down at a different, uh, at a, you know, over a length of area. I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen those John Skinner videos with a camera way down on the bottom where those flounder, they're just chasing things down for miles. Um, Southern flounder don't do that. Um, you know, they're, uh, they're opportunistic predator. They're relatively lazy when it, when it comes to, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, you know, fishing for them and bait fishing for them, you know, you gotta, you gotta move baits around to them. Um, they're not gonna, they're not gonna give up their, you know, their bottom for, for much. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, their mannerisms and behavior, think of them, but about a, a lady, a lazy Southern man, you know, I mean, they're not going to do much to get off that couch. Um, but, uh, you put a big fat bait in front of it, it's going to thump it. Um, they're, uh, you know, once again, flounder, they, you know, they, because they sit on the bottom, think about this, they have no air bladder. So they're a lot less inclined to be influenced by high pressure, low pressure, like say a redfish or a trout would, because they have air bladders. And sometimes they get kind of like a lot more lethargic or unwilling to bite, uh, due to a pressure system. Now, different pressure systems will affect the water. And, and yes, that will affect the fish indirectly, but sheer pressure I have found really doesn't affect the flounder that much. So, um, so on that, uh, on that Southern flounder side, you know, um, once again, we can, we can start going into the tactic side when we talk about, you know, how to fish for these Southern flounder, um, these Southern flounder definitely, you know, I personally like to live bait for flounder. I get more and I get better fish live baiting. Um, you can go artificial and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and I do a little bit of, of artificial, especially if my customers, you know, just really want to do it. We do it when we catch them, but we never catch as many. We would never catch the size. Um, I, I Carolina rig, a uh, live bait for, um, for, uh, for flounder, you know, you're fishing the bottom. That's where the fish are at. Um, you got to make sure that, you know, that, that the rig encompasses the area that you fish. You got to be able to make sure, you know, the gear I use is, is a little bit heavier than what you would think. And it has nothing to do with the flounder. It actually has to do with the structure that you're fishing. Um, live baiting with the Carolina rig is, is something that's going to get hung up. You know, if you're not, uh, if you're not uh, losing rigs, man, you're in the wrong spot. You know, I go through on any given charter day, I'll go through 10, 20 rigs, not even blink an eye. Um, you know, we're, uh, you know, we, we're fishing structure, those bigger females and those bigger, uh, those bigger flounder are going to be hanging around structure. You know, I get, I get, uh, questions all the time on, um, you know, why don't, you know, in, in other seminars that, that we've done with you, Gary, especially in the wintertime when, you know, when we have a question and answer period, one of the biggest things I get is, you know, man, I'm, you know, all I do is catch, you know, these, these small flounder and I can't catch anything, you know, anything bigger than, you know you know, just a bit over keeping size. I keep catching these small flounder. And, and, you know, when I ask them, well, what are you doing? How are you fishing for them? Um, it always says, man, well, I was drifting the inlet or I'm sitting there and I got some mud minnows and I got this. Well, 
a lot of these things that you'll you'll catch some fish that way and you might even catch a keeper that way but there's certain tips and tricks that are going to enable you to catch those bigger fish i can probably count on two hands at any given time throughout the year that i actually catch an undersized flounder um you know we target these larger females due to structure due to baits due to rigs and and these types of you know tips and tricks are going to enable you to really consistently catch those larger fish so uh yeah if we if, if you're good with that we can go straight into tactics yeah man i think uh i think you got people's attention because i'm i think that's a pretty universal experience with many fishermen is like how can it be so hard to even catch a keeper flounder let alone a keeper flounder with some girth that you really want to fillet and not just you can fillet legally so if if you've got if you've got some systems for us if you've got some hints then please proceed yeah man for sure so um let's kind of start off on on the flounders migration time um and and the reason i'm bringing this up is because is you know there's a good part of the summer where you know the flounders stay kind of where they're at and they're you know they kind of go into deeper and shallower water for sure but you know once again those flounder move offshore to breed so you know if you're sitting there and you're fishing way up in the creeks early in the season, you're, you're kind of fishing in the wrong areas. So think about when those, um, when the flounder goes offshore to breed, normally they start to group up and go off in about the November timeframe. So those big, big fat females, they're moving offshore, like I said, upwards of like 60 miles offshore to breed. And so, you know, when they go out, they'll, they'll sit there, they'll breed and, you know, and then they'll make their way in around, you know, April, April timeframe. Um, and, but the thing is, is that, you know, once again, they don't shoot all the way, just they don't hightail it way up in the creeks, you know, they're going to start slow moving it as soon as they get to say the inlets, the mouth of the rivers, you know, those areas that for that are, you know, off the ocean and then you know, their entry points into places that they're going to be when that water temp gets warmer. So, um, honestly, I really don't start catching good sizable flounder. Like I'll start getting some, some decent flounder and, you know, late April, um, but really it's about middle of May. I, I really kind of start consistently getting good flounder. Um, I, I find that, you know, you start getting the smaller ones and I, I really don't think that it, it has to do with that the bigger ones aren't there. I just don't think that they're chewing. I think those smaller fish and I believe smaller flounder, whether they're immature females or males, I think that they, um, you know, they struggle with, uh, with competition. And so they're a little bit more aggressive especially coming coming in off the, off the wrecks and uh, being in shore. And also those immature females, um, and as those males come in, a lot of those immature females haven't even made it off, you know, made it off the wreck. So they're there all year until they become maturely uh, sexually active. So um, when they, so back to, you know, when they start coming in, so those are those fringe months, right? Those fringe months in the spring of, you know, um, late April, May, even early June, hit those, hit the mouse, hit, you know, if, and if you're hitting the inlet, don't drift the inlet, man. A lot of inlets have some sort of structure, hit those points of structure, hit those eddy points. Um, once again, those fish, they're faced into the inlet. If you can can find some type of ambush point or some type of choke point, whether it's a rock wall or whether it's a mud bank or whether it's an eddy and a drop off, those types of areas are really going to help you out, um, you know, on, on the inlet and river mouths and, and first initial creeks, those first thing in the season. And once that water temp warms up and once that bait starts droving out, you know, um, and starts, you know, getting big enough to where they're, they're feeding on, they'll start moving up in the creek. So, you know, about, you know, early June, mid June, you know, all the way to, you know, about middle of October, man, they're going to be laid up in those upper creeks and those upper areas. Um, 
you know, they're uh, and so that type of time of year, if you can kind of follow them in from outside to in and then inside to out, it's going to give yourself a better chance for for catching more fish and better fish on that front. Um, and uh, and you know, and going back to going back to structure, um, you know, not only fish structure on those initial points and on those initial areas, but always fish structure. You know, those big females will be laid up next to an oyster bed at wherever that sand meets oyster beds, mud eats oyster beds, you know, any type of uh, grass um, wall or mud wall where currents pushing into it that would push bait up against it. They'll be laid right up flat up against that. Um, any type of man-made structure, you know, I, I really like old pilings. I normally don't fish the intercoastal because of one traffic and two, it gets so overfished. But if you can find some creeks that have some super old, pilings on them that are just oyster laden and super big man definitely fish those types of things um but uh any or you know drop-offs uh you know you, structure and choke points are, are definitely something to to think about on that front um the um uh when i've caught all or just about all of my double digit flounder have been in less than six inches of water but there's been two um instances where um where i haven't but the rest of them have been in that in that time frame or in that type of structure uh format but the there's one thing that always is common or two things that's always common one there's structure nearby they're laid up right next to it and two there's an immediate drop off nearby um a lot of people will go out to the, they're like wow i'll just go find some skinny water and fish for flounder no man those those flounder like a deep drop off nearby whether it's protection whether it's just because the water is a little bit cooler and they're not baking to death in some type of big old flat or uh, or it's just on that bait side that bait's not going to be in that deep water column they're going to be pushed up against it and i think over time this flounder would rather you know catch fish in in a uh, six inch water column than they would in a six foot water column um, but, uh, but yeah, those bigger flounder, if you can kind of find those areas that have that subdermal ledge that's right next to a bank and then a deep drop off nearby, man, that's, that's some really good, um, structure and, uh, and underwater topography to really kind of hit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of where we're at on the structure side. I'm trying to think if there's any other type of structure I would think, you know, old stumps, old trees that are coming in the water. Some, like I said, someplace that's going to allow any type of bait to congregate and, and have protection, man, there's going to be a flounder that's going to edge itself up there to try to get an easy meal. Um, and so if, uh, if I think one of the best advices I can give about how to find that structure is if, if you've got a boat, go out at a really low tide and go and you will see these oyster beds and you will see these stumps and you will see these rock piles and things like that. If you can sit there and mentally make that note of where those are, whether it's with your GPS or a mental note, um, and then go hit them uh, when that current's running, whether on an incoming tide or outgoing tide, like I said, current's paramount, um, you know, you're gonna have a lot better chance on uh, on that to be able to do it. Um, I got a know, question. What's that? I got a question, man. So in these creeks and going and I understand the logic about looking at low tide and being able to get a better, you know, vision of what you're seeing later on that's underwater. So if a part of a creek is high and dry at low tide, that's still a very fishable spot when the water comes in, like the flounder will follow the tide up. You know, they're not so sedentary. They're not so set in a hole that... They're gonna. They will move with the water, and they will go up to what is showing to be dry at low tide. 
Yeah, so um, absolutely. Uh, they'll definitely go up on those flats. I mean, especially at night. Um, you know, you get moonlight and a flat up at night. Um, not only is the water cooler, but uh, it's a lot easier area for them to feed. But, uh, but you know, it's interesting you brought up holes. And I know a lot of people are like, you know, I got to find a good hole to fish for flounder. Well, believe it or not, it's not really the hole that holds the flounder. It's the area and structure around it, whether it's the slope leading down to the hole, where it's a, whether it's a ledge just above the hole or even on the flat just above the hole. Um, you know, I catch so many more flounder in those areas than I do actually in the hole. So don't try to find a hole and fish in the middle of it. Try to fish the outer edges of that hole. And most of the time, the hole's there for a reason. Most of the time, the hole's there because there's a bend in a creek and, uh, you know, that, that water's dug out that hole or whether, you know, you've got a hard substrate versus a soft substrate that is, uh, that is dug out due to current. But all those things have to do with current. So, you know, when you find those, when you find those drop offs, holes and things like that, that's because current at any given time has dug those out. And normally that's because that's where flounder is going to be. So if you can find structure and ledges around those holes, that's really going to help. Okay. Makes sense. I mean, that's a great tip actually. Cool. 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 Good deal. Um, yeah, no. So, you know, structure, like I said, man, structure is huge. That's, that's one of my, my big three, um, on, on that. And we'll kind of, we'll, when we do the wrap up and everything, I'll kind of go back and, and give you some, some, uh, some of those to make sure those, these things that, that you need to figure out. Um, you know, I get asked a lot too about tides. Uh, what's the best tide, uh, to fish for flounder? Um, it's to me, it's really about water movement versus tide. Um, but there's certain instances where tide does matter. Um, I find that any type of uh, a river or constant flowing creek that an out that an outgoing tide is better um, for the main reason that the water in a river constantly flowing creek is always still flowing out. So when you have an outgoing tide that exacerbates that current, kind of speeds that current up. So you can actually go to the outer walls of the river in the smaller type of feeder creeks and rice creeks and things like that that might be outflowing and fish the mouths of those creeks and any type of oyster beds that'll be around those creeks um, and have a lot better chance when you have an incoming tide uh, a lot of times it slows that current down a little bit especially on the outer edges if i fish if i fish the river or or a large creek normally i go to the center uh, areas of the creek on an incoming tide because there's just more current there um, whereas, you know, if you have, if you're in the intercoastal or you're in a constant waterway, that's completely tidal dependent and nothing else, you know, just find that moving water. And that's, that's really going to help you on that front. Um, uh, I, you know, as with so many other species on a, on an outgoing tide, the, one of the things I like about that is once that water gets about halfway down and it pushes all of that bait fish, that shrimp, um, mullet, pogies, spot, croaker, pinfish, all that type of stuff that can't hide in the grass anymore. The fish know that. So you find those ambush points, you find those creek mounds, you find those river banks that are just on the outside that, that those flounder is going to lay up there. They know it. The drummer there, the trout there, all the predatory fish are there. So um, that's that's definitely, you know, uh, on, on my side of the tides. Um, it, you know, obviously tides are, are uh, uh, you know, they're indicative of, of the moon phase. A lot of people ask me about the moon phase and I could go into it a bit, but I'll give you just one, one solid thing to think of. I consistently find that the week leading up to a high tide or a, to a full moon is always the best. 
man. It's just, it always seems to have the better bite. It's not that you're not going to catch them any other time. I just have a better bite that week going up to a high top or to a full moon. Um, it just seems to be like they're more active. They're more solid. The bite is more aggressive. It's just, I don't get it, but they like it. They like it. All right. So, I mean, yeah, like I, I think, uh, I think that is a good tip for the moon. And instead of going into any more detail, because we are, we have been sort of aggressive with how much we want to cover. I got to keep you pushing forward and, you know, to the next topic, Luke. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. No worries. Um, you know, I have, of course, I got my little notes down here. I'm trying to, I'm, like I said, I can just ramble on about anything. So, um, especially when it comes to flounder fishing, but, uh, uh, you know, I have down on here on depth and we've talked about it a little bit, but like I said, I like, I like areas that, you know, even, a, even if it's a couple feet of water, like I said, I caught so many big flounder, you know, and, and less than a foot of water, less than six inches of water. But, but really, you know, those couple feet of water with a deep drop off nearby, man, it's just, it's a good place to fish um, on depth. You know, like I said, there's certain areas like snow's cut and these, these super larger choke points, um, you know, of a Moorhead city, you got the wall up there and you've got, you know, like I said, you got snow's cut down here or you got, you know, the, the rocks out at Wrightsville Beach Inlet and things like that. And those areas are going to hold some decent fish because there's structure and there's a lot of bait and there's a lot of current. Um, but, but honestly, it's, you know, if, if you can think about targeting the structure more than targeting the fish, then uh, you'll probably put yourself in a better stead of being able to, you know, systematically hit these areas. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you, you hit it a couple times, move on, hit it, you know, go to the next spot, hit it a couple times, move on, instead of having to wait for those flounder to come in and come out. Um, you know, I know a lot of people on, on the tide side, they know one spot that does well at a certain tide and they'll just sit there all day and just wait on that tide. If you can do, you know, doing your homework is, 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 is really crucial for flounder fishing. Um, I call it T-O-W, tow. Time on water is going to be your number one thing of being a better flounder fisherman. If you can sit there and figure out what what spot is really good at dead low transition, what spot is really good at high tide transition, what spot is good on incoming high, incoming low, outgoing high, outgoing low, middle, and you know those types of areas, and then you create yourself a little map of hitting all of those areas in sequence. Man, all of a sudden you've increased your chances by five you know, hundred percent. So, you know, don't just go to that one spot and sit there and wait because you'll be waiting a while and it might not work for you. So it, the more places that you can have that, you know, do well at a certain time, the more you're going to be successful at, at that, at that point. And so on depth, I'll pretty much leave it at that. Um, current, and we've talked about it a little bit too. Current is, it's just, man, it's just really important. Um, it's, you know, the, the current has to be moving, to, you know, and I'm not saying like heavy current. In fact, a lot of times the snow's cut, which I hate to fish, but if I fish snow's cut, it's, you know, it's going to be in those areas that aren't in the heavy direct currents. It's going to be in those swirl eddies. It's going to be in those places where a flounder can actually sit there and strike a bait and not be blown away. So don't, you know, sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to be out there in the middle of the super heavy current. Um, almost always those fish and those big choke points with a lot of current are going to be along the sides and along the edges and off the eddies and points. Um, so definitely hit those areas. Um, and I think they'll really do you, do you good. Now, another one of my bigs with flounder fishing is clarity. Um, clarity is so crucial to flounder fishing. Um, man, it, they're such a visual predator. 
you know, it's, it's once again, they're not going to chase a bait down. And if you're in dirty water and it can't see it a foot away from it, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to even waste its time with it because obviously it can't see it where you have, you know, redfish and spotted trout and other fish that are constantly moving through the water column, searching out for those fish. The flounder sits there and is waiting for the fish to come to them. So the more clarity you have, the more chance they're going to see it and strike it. So, um, you know, in those, in those areas, you know, you know, fishing, say in the river, you know, down here in, in, in New Hanover, I mean, man, our consistency uh, is, is this in the summertime, especially during flounder season, is that southwest wind 10 to 20. So, man, that will sit there and muddy up that river, about 70% of that river. But think about this. That's a good thing. You find those clear pockets of water, you're going to find those fish. Those fish know that they go to the clear pockets of water. The bait's going to be there. They're going to be feeding. And that just all of a sudden eliminates all this area you have to cover. So look for those clarity pockets and man, you're going to put yourself in, in pretty good, pretty good stead on that front. Now that sounds like a, a great tip. I mean, I hadn't thought about, you know, 70% is a good thing. 70% unfishable or not, not to be fished is a good thing to limit your choices. Man, uh, I tell you what, like I, we're going to do a a part two of this podcast because we're just not going to have time to talk about bait in this podcast. We're going to talk about bait and terminal tackle and gear. But again, I yeah. think I see that as a good thing because, man, you've covered so much material already. I want to circle back a little bit to some of it because yeah. I don't I want people to grasp it. I want to grasp it more. So mm -hmm. with this conversation about terrain and structure and water clarity and tide. So mm -hmm. you're you're not drifting. You are anchoring up when you target when you figure out a certain area you want to fish. Is that correct? Most of the time, I do, because um, I I know that there's certain areas that hold multiple structures and different things. So if you can imagine a creek mouth, right? You've got a you got a creek coming out from the marsh, and on one side where the current's heavier, you're normally going to have a straight drop down that'll be a mud bank. And of course, that 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 bottom substrate that meets up with that mud bank, I'd work that whole line right there. But probably on the other side of that creek, you're probably either going to have an oyster bed or a sandbar that's going to have them nuddled up to that as well. And so, you know, to to know these different spots, at, like say at a choke point on a on a creek mouth and such, um, it's uh, it's it's really going to do you in good stead to sit there and know what you know what you're fishing. Just don't throw it at the creek mouth and, and hope one's going to be there. Know that there's an oyster bed over there. Know that this mud bank goes down a certain depth. Know that, you know, that, that the current's heaviest right here, but there's an eddy little point that comes off this creek mouth that looks really good. Hey, man, if it looks good, it looks good. You know, fish it. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's the type of thing on those. Um, and, and one more thing on, on, on kind of what to look for, especially if you're just going out, you know, like, hey, I didn't go out at low tide, but, man, I got the afternoon off. I'm, I'm going to go out and give it a shot. Um, what do I look for? Um, a lot of these, you know, whether it's in the intercoastal or whether it's in the river or, you know, anywhere in shore that has a main channel in the center, most of the time you're going to have these barrier islands that sit on the outside of that channel. So think about this. When you have, when you have an island sitting here like this and you have an incoming tide that's coming in this way, you want to fish that you want to fish where that current splits the island don't fish on the back side where there's no current and vice versa when the tide's coming in so it's like tide coming in tide going out hit those areas on those barrier islands where the current hits it and splits it 
because that's where the current's going to be. That's where the bait's going to be confused. And that's normally where those fish are going to hang out. Man, that's great. That's great that you said that because I was thinking of a similar question. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to ask you, you know, because there's so many different variables. But like bait presentation with old stumps, with oyster rocks, oyster bars, you know, with even pylons. What about that? I mean, I was wondering, am I trying to put the bait on the down current side, like out of the current? But am I doing that with the smaller structure as well? Or is that more a barrier island, uh, an island type tip? So, so a lot of times, you know, I know a lot of people that'll fish behind the boat. They'll throw a couple rods behind the boat for any segwaying flounder that's actually on the move. And they just have those completely still and they're not even working them. They're letting what I call Rodney take care of them, Rodney, the rod holder. But if you're sitting there, you're jigging and you're throwing and you're working, I cast up current, up current and away from me and then slowly bring it into me to sweep it over that whole current front. So that way it, it gives the best presentation in front of that flounder's mouth to be able to hit it. If you're throwing it behind you and trying to work it, a lot of times that current's going to pick it up off the bottom. The flounder's not going to hit it and or you're not getting the presentation in front of the flounder correctly. So or you're going behind the flounder if you're fishing specifically a smaller area. You know, you're getting behind them. Then all of a sudden you're hitting them on the backside with the weight. They're shooting off, not knowing you know really what's going on. But to sit there and throw it up current and away from you and then bring it back in to to come across the current and then present right in front of them so they got a better chance to snap it in front of them instead of behind them, you'll have a really good chance on that. Okay, I, I like that. I mean, I was going to go in that direction too. So up current, and that way you're bringing the, fit, the bait back to you with the current, and that's a more natural presentation that the flounder is ready for facing into the current, yeah. a fish, a bait fish swimming with the current, not against it, and that equals right. more hookups. Right. And, um, you know, and we'll probably segue a little bit into gear on this, but, um, you know, using using the right type of weight to be able to fish the distance and depth that you're fishing is, is imperative, too. If you know you're going to be fishing a little bit heavier current and a little bit more depth. You know, go with a heavier weight that, you know, is going to be down there. If you're not feeling the bottom as you're dragging it, your weight's too light. You want to feel that bumping on the bottom. You want to feel it catching up on structure or, or hard clumps or stumps and stuff like that. You want to feel that bottom. Um, if you're not feeling anything, your weight's too light and you're just not getting it there. So, um, you know, once again, I use a Carolina rig. So, and most of the time, and I'll go anywhere from, you know, half ounce to ounce and a half, depending on fishing offshore, whether I'm fishing in a lot slower current with silty mud. But most of the time I'm, I'm one ounce to three quarter ounce are my, are my go-to sinkers for most of the fishing that I do. Um, and so those will most of the time in, in most of these creeks and rivers and stuff like that, that'll get it on down. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, you know, once again, I live bait fish, um, to me, size is more important than, uh, than type. Uh, if you're using a, I'll take a larger pinfish over a small mud, mud, mud minnow any day of the week. And I don't use mud minnows at all because none of them are big enough. Um, hey, I I'm gonna. Maybe. I'm 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 cutting you off because we don't have. I mean, I I know we can talk a while about bait. I know I know you can. I mean, I can't, but I know you can. And we're yeah. basically at the end of our time for this podcast. I mean, but again, I'm telling you, we are when as soon as we wrap this up, we are making plan for part two, so that we can go into more detail on this, Luke. I mean, I I, I part of me doesn't want to cut you off. But I know that we are at the end, 
and we've easily got another podcast episode. And I'm sure any viewer or listener listening to this is saying, yeah, man, bring that guy back for part two. So you cool with that? Man, I'm all good. I'm all good for sure. All right. So we are going to make plans as soon as this podcast is over for part two. It'll be coming out shortly. But hey, to wrap this up, you know, to wrap this up again with terrain, with location, with variables, you know, how about some final thoughts on that just to bring this this episode to a close? No, absolutely. Um, so the big the big things that I've talked about is like, once again, T.O.W., man, time on water. It's the more time you get out there and the more time that you can find those structures that we've talked about, the more that you're going to put yourself in front of a big flounder. That's just that's just the way it works. Um, another is, man, have a plan. When you go out, say, I'm going to hit this area, this area, this area and go and, and work it. Do nothing but that. Even though most of the time you're going to strike out, man, you're going to find that one place you know, every couple of times you go out and then you're going to have a full on solid plan later on down the road. It's all about doing your homework on that front. And, and the last has been clarity and big baits are the other two very small things that make a big, big difference. Use bigger baits and fish with clarity. How long do you fish a spot before you say it's time to move on? About a beer's worth. All right. I got you, man. Hey, uh, Luke, this was a great, I mean, this was great. I, you make my job so easy when you have so much knowledge to share. It makes my job easy. And, and I do love talking flounder fishing with you. And I'm looking forward already to part two. Man, thank you, Luke. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. All right. Yeah. Billy. Wow, what a show, Gary. Uh, I'm just over here like, holy smokes. I told you guys. I told. That's all I got to say. I told you. You did. I set it up. I set him up perfect, and he cr- I should be sitting in your chair, Gary. I set him up so good. And he is the first captain to qualify for podcast episode take two. If we didn't have a shoot right after this, we would just keep him here for another 45 minutes, <laughs> and that would just separate it in post. But anyway, it meant... What a show. You know, one thing that I, um, and I fish with Luke, and so I've seen, you know, some of his strategy that he's talking about in uh, in those, and it's, it's kind of crazy, man, because I was red fishing with him one day. He's like, watch at the end of this point, and this is my best takeaway, and it was on the boat that day as well, is to find those ambush points where that current, those eddies are, those fish are just hanging, and they're going out and snagging a meal and coming back. And, uh, man, I just sit there and watch like the last time I went fishing with him, he's like, put it right there on the end. Of course I have, you know, prestigious casting skills. So I put it right there on the end and maybe actually he cast, I can't remember now, but anyway, he's like, so just wait, put it in the rod holder, let Rodney do it. Like he's talking about and then smash. And then there it is. So this show just got me freaking fired up, dude. I'm like, right? Oh, I just want to go out there and catch one of those doormats, man. Cause he does dude. If you follow him on Instagram, he just posts doormats all day. Like he buys them at the supermarket or something. I want to get on that boat and lose like the 20 to 30 rigs. Like that's like, <laughs> I want to live up to that part of his expectation. <laughs> I want to lose all your rigs. I am prepared to lose as much of Luke Donate's tackle as necessary. And then some, some I'll, I'll just throw some overboard just to like, He's he's not watching. Here you go. Just <laughs> how many how many rigs have we lost? Uh, ten. Okay. About a beer's worth. About a beer's worth. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's such a good episode, dude. It I'm, was. I'm fired up. Can't wait for number two. Uh, so wow. All first, right. uh, first in Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast history. That's it. Yeah. When you get the both hosts just going. 
God, we gotta get on this, man. So uh, anyway, I'm gonna shut up so we can get off here and schedule it. All right, Billy. All right, I have nothing else to add, man, except for Marine Warehouse Center. Man, they know a thing or two about catching flounder too. Yep. They are friends of the fishermen. They are part of the fishing community, and please support them, man. We believe in them. That's right. And you need some. You need Ari Hitch to put that hitch on so you can drag that new boat from Marine Warehouse around. So there you go. Deal. Done. 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 All right. We'll see you in the next episode.